This is Tim Harford, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? My name's Tim Harford. I'm a journalist, radio presenter, and an author, uh, most famously of The Undercover Economist, and more recently of a book called Adapt. And uh, I, I have to confess something to you off the bat. I'm a huge fan of The Undercover Economist. Uh, I have two stacks of books sitting uh, next to my bed, um, one of which is books that I have to read for the Leader Lab site to review, and the other is books that I want to read. Uh, and The Logic of Life, which is your previous book, is sitting in the stack of books I want to read but has not been uh, touched for about six months, and so I apologize ahead of time for that. And now I, I have another of your books to, to add to the list of books that I want to read uh, and, and get to which is uh, ADAPT. But I want to ask you, what uh, you, you deal with a lot of um, economics and you deal with, uh, you have a beautiful show on the BBC radio called More or Less, but what led you to write ADAPT? Well, I was began by thinking to myself, hey, the world's got some problems. We've got terrorism and wars, climate change, the financial crisis, a whole bunch of problems. Um, I'm an economist. What is it that economics can do to solve these problems? As I started looking at that question, I found I sort of had it backwards. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be starting with economics. I should be starting with the problem and figure out what it was that we could do to solve. And if, if the answers came from economics, that's great. But if they had to come from a management theory or sociology or evolutionary biology or psychology or, or wherever, then I should, be, I should be looking for the answer. I shouldn't be starting with my hammer. Uh, and uh, just assuming that whatever I came across was there. So that, that was the process. Uh, and the thing that, that emerged as I was looking at this big, complex problem was we like to think of complex problems as things that we can solve by being really smart. Get some expert, fantastic leadership, that, that sort of thing. We think really, really hard. We come up with a solution. We implement the solution. And that just wasn't what they discovered it. What I discovered is that all of these, the way they get solved is to approach the entire Try a bunch of things. A lot of them don't. And some of them do. And if you have a good process, the, the good idea is get copied, replicated, repeated, and improved. Often we don't have good Often good ideas get lost and bad ideas go on forever. No, I, I think that's a great idea and we, we uh, I appreciate the approach. You are, I will confess, you are our first um, full-blooded economist on the show. We would have loved if all of the answers to the world's problems could have been solved by management and leadership theory. Um, but we have to, uh, as, as good leaders, we've got to turn to other areas, including economics. Now, as I, as I gazed through ADAPT and looked at the different subjects, um, I, you know, I, interestingly enough, um, I think this is a great marketing platform, even though they didn't intend it to be. But I, I, I first caught the attention of ADAPT watching your um, TEDx talk. from I, I believe it was TEDx Warwick. And um, talked a lot about a very interesting uh, leadership dilemma within the our, within the U.S. military. But the thing that I focused on the book on when I saw a lot of was was essentially conflict and how that par uh, parlays into organizations and organizational learning. Could you um, go ahead and briefly explain how conflict helps organizations learn? Well, the uh, general put it to me very well. He said we we readily implement lessons learned at the on the front line because if you don't, people get killed. But we really, really struggle to implement lessons learned higher up the pyramid. So the, the colonels, the corporals, the captains, 
the privates, they're learning. Uh, the generals are not necessarily learning. So I, I guess that's, that's the lesson in a nutshell. What we looked at in particular was the experience of the U.S. Army in Iraq. And we tell ourselves a story that's sort of true, which is um, we, we had these bad leaders who wouldn't listen. And then we got good leaders. We got David Petraeus. Uh, and then we got a good strategy, and that was how we fixed the problem. And, and that's not untrue. But when I looked at the story, I found there was something much more interesting going on. Uh, so before David Petraeus took over in Iraq, uh, there was a group of colonels, particularly a guy, Colonel H.R. McMaster, who were pioneering new methods of dealing with counterinsurgency. And at the time, this was a time when Donald Rumsfeld was, was telling Peter Pace, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I don't even want to hear the word insurgent mentioned. So at the top of the organization, people couldn't even use the word to describe the problem. At the bottom of the organization, you had some, some very brave men, brave in the usual way that, that you know, many soldiers are, but brave also because they were taking risks of their career to go against the official strategy and try out uh, new ways of getting results. Very interesting, and, and I'll, I'll put a plug out to uh, the TEDx uh, talks that if you if you want more in that sort of scenario, you should definitely check the um, the TED talk out. But in addition, there's this idea of uh, building adaptive organizations based on this this idea that we can learn more from failure than from success, or at least as much from failure as success. And I know it's it's at least what I see on the states is it's a big big issue right now. I think uh, in March, Harvard Business Review's cover stories were all about failure. And all of that sort of thing. And my interest as, a, as an organizational scholar is exactly that. How can we help build uh, adaptive organizations, organizations that are ready to see these failures and extract the learning opportunity? I think the, the first thing to note is that there's just a lot of failure around. I mean, it's not just the financial crisis. Um, if you look at just the statistics, many, many American firms go out of business every year, probably. 10% of American firms go out of business every year. And failure is ubiquitous, and you see it in all kinds of complex systems. And so if you don't get good at managing failure and responding to failure, you're going to be one of those statistics. How do you do it? The first principle, I'd say, is uh, you need to, to test lots of safe ideas, lots of different things that, that could go wrong but might go right. The second uh, rule is they need to be what... I guess Peter Sims has a nice book out at the moment called Little Bets. They need to be little bets. And what Sims means by little bets is potentially there's great upside. Um, but if it doesn't work out, it's not going to kill you. It's not going to destroy your business. It's not going to destroy your division. So failure has to be survival. And the third principle, and this is really important and really easy to ignore, is you have to actually be able to tell the difference between a success and a failure. And that was, I think, the most surprising thing I learned in all the case studies, whether I was looking at finance or uh, economic development or, or the military or innovation, the lesson that kept coming out is it's really, really hard to tell uh, the difference between a success and a failure. And a lot of that is to do with psychological issues. You know, we enter denial. We refuse to acknowledge that something's going wrong. There's lots of research from psychology and from behavioral economics. But it's also to do with organizational issues. It's just this classic problem. Um, organizations want yes men and yes women. Leaders don't want to be told that something's not go going right. Or even if they do want to be told that something's going right, you know, their their junior uh, juniors, their subordinates are going to be be very cautious. And there's this classic study by Irving Janis, Victims of Groupthink, where he looks at uh, 
the Bay of Pigs fiasco, John F. Kennedy. And what's really interesting about that is Kennedy was asking for feedback. President Kennedy wanted to be told that things weren't going well, but somehow everybody sort of felt they didn't want to disrupt the group dynamic. Everyone assumed that everybody else thought this catastrophic plan was going to work out. Um, so it wasn't, Kennedy wasn't you know, a Stalin figure ruthlessly suppressing dissent. He thought he was encouraging dissent, and yet somehow he didn't get it, didn't get those contradictory viewpoints. That's really, really hard. Or to, to get the feedback that tells you whether something's working or something isn't. Hmm. A, a very interesting point. And I think you're right. There's definitely a, a feel within organizations to want to uh, celebrate successes and sort of ignore failures. I, I don't know if it stems from this idea of uh, your performance evaluation reflects failures and that hurts your, your organizational limitations as far as how far you can go, or, or if there's a deeper issue there. But you know, speaking specifically to leaders, people like uh, John F. Kennedy or, or to any organizational leader, be it somebody, uh, you know, at the helm of the former Bear Stearns, uh, what advice would you have for not just recognizing the failures and, and finding the learning to, uh, from the failures, but this idea of separating what a success is from what a failure is? I think it very much depends what uh, business you're in. Um, but in many businesses, in many organizations, that there there is scope for uh, for learning. I think you need to be quite disciplined about um, being clear about what it is that, that counts as a What is it that you're actually looking to achieve? People often do something and they're not really terribly specific about actually the results they want. But what is it that we're aiming for? Is it is it, is it market share? Is it is it profit? Um, is it to, uh, to find out how customers respond to a new product? Um, are we looking to kill the bad guys? Are we looking to to support the good guys. I mean, what what is it we're trying to get out of it? And to try to find metrics that help you measure that. And I think one thing that's really important, you can often find metrics, especially in this digital age, um, and, and test properly against good control. Um, but something that we really learned to the financial crisis is, you know, sometimes you can't actually uh, spot a failing product. Uh, a lot of the, the products that were traded during the crisis uh, were uh, they looked profitable, but they were actually uh, embodied huge risk, and eventually those risks blew up. And I think that a just as important lesson, not just about you know, measure success, measure failure. It's also about recognizing sometimes you cannot, uh, at least early on, measure the difference between success and failure. And if you can't, for goodness sake, don't pay people big bonuses based on completely spurious measure of success. Those, those spirits measures will very quickly be exploited, and then the cost of that can be tremendous. Hmm. I think you're absolutely right, and uh, you know, I, I'm sure you know. I'm sure it got over the Atlantic, but it uh, paying out bonuses for what looked like failures is um, is an interesting problem, and it, it brings up a greater issue. You know, a, a long time ago, we we talked to Dan Pink on the podcast, and it brings up a greater issue about incentives in general. And I know I'm I'm bringing this up to economists, but sometimes I, I wonder if. Um, not just not if incentives don't work, but if we have organizations that are just not incentivized at all for this idea of failure. I know a lot of times when I'm talking to uh, organizations and, and leaders, and I'm talking about things like Google's 20% time and these ideas of be, allowing people to tinker and fail and have small small little bets that don't pay off that have a learning opportunity, and they ask, well, "What's the ROI?" It seems like there's a desire to incentivize only success, and, and if there is going to be a failure, we have to know how much it's going to cost in order to bring back um, some sort of return. But 
What would you say to those people who are looking for an ROI or, or some sort of um, ability to extract or, or guarantee a success from these individual failures? Um, well, I mean, success can't be guaranteed. Uh, I mean, that's, that's one thing we know for sure. In a complex world, you can never be sure you're going to get a success. Uh, I think that we, we need to look very hard at, at how an organization responds to failure. Um, I, there's, there's a, there tends to be this sort of zero-tolerance approach, uh, which is, you know, like people are going to get yelled at if, they, if they're perceived as having failed. Um, and that means, of course, they conceal failures. Uh, uh, they, they, don't, they don't collect the proper metrics because, hey, that might demonstrate that you failed. Uh, and they'll, they'll hush things up, which means that learning doesn't go up to the, the top of the organization. And I think, um, and this is something that came out quite, quite nicely in the recent Harvard Business Review uh, special edition on failure. You need to be really clear about failures that you're willing to tolerate and failures that you're, that you're not. And for failures that you're not willing to tolerate, how you respond. So if you're running a nuclear power station, um, a failure is unacceptable. Uh, but the lesson from that is if there is a failure, uh, it's got to be dealt with in a really positive way. So I uh, visited a nuclear power station a couple of months ago as part of the research for the book, but a few more than a couple of months ago, part of the research for the book. And one of the things that I found is that they have a near-miss reporting system. Every, every error, every violation gets reported. It's done in triplicate. It's a very formalized process. It seems really bureaucratic, but you know, you can't let this stuff slip. It gets reported in writing to the regulator and to the peers of the energy company so that other people running similar new stations can hey, those guys um, made this slip. You know, the power station didn't blow up, but it could have been a problem. We'd better make sure that our processes are better. This is this very, very detailed process for, for capturing uh, learning uh, from failure. In other sorts of industries, say uh, a classic Silicon Valley industry, I think you can just be a lot more, um, a lot more relaxed. If somebody screws up, you go, hey, it was great you tried something really interesting. We encourage that. A uh, round of applause, maybe a you know, little booby prize, a joke prize on a Friday afternoon for a, uh, you know, a, a heroic failure or an interesting failure, and everyone get back to work on Monday morning and, and try something else. So I think we need to... Uh, respond positively to failures, but what counts as a positive response to failure very much depends on the kind of industry you're going to be in. I think that's a good point, and there's a there's a desire by a lot of people to uh, turn everybody into Google. And you know what's funny is it's Google now. It was 3M 10 years ago, uh, and I'm sure 10 years from now it'll be some entirely different company that we didn't even see coming. Who knows? Maybe maybe it'll be Foursquare. I I don't even know. But um, there's a lot of other great stuff in the book uh, that deals with looking at you know, at problems of the world and solving with economics. It, it seems like everything from cli climate change to um, what to do about poverty situations. But I have to, I want to switch gears from the book, if you'll permit me. I, I could not allow uh, someone like yourself on the podcast without bringing this up, because as a, as a researcher myself, I find this is hilarious. Uh, a couple months, a couple weeks ago, you did on your more or less show, a little blurb about uh, statistical significance and essentially why p-value is, is the wrong question. Could, could I ask you to give a little blurb for our audience about sort of recapping what that uh, section of your show was about? Sure. Well, my recollection was it was mostly about me eating candies of different colors, which was kind of fun. I like to do that. Um, so there's this, there's this classical uh, statistical test, the test of statistical significance, and the basic idea is um, you see a result in the data 
And the question is, should you take this result seriously or is it just a fluke? And the, the test that most researchers use is for the test of statistical significance. Now, the irony is most statisticians think that this test is extremely crude and, and often misused. The basic test of statistical significance, imagine, say, um, you have a, a, a new uh, marketing treatment um, for your product. So you roll out this, you roll out a product, um, a line of products with a new packaging. You, you have some stuff with the old packaging. You do a statistical test. Companies should do this a lot more, by the way. You do a statistical test and you see whether the new packaging helps. Now, the way the test of statistical significance works is that it says, hey, let's assume that new packaging doesn't make any difference. Let's assume it's just the same. Now, let's see whether the data prove that that idea was wrong and actually the new packaging has to be better. And that's, that seems reasonable. And you sort of think about it a bit and you realize maybe that's not a very good question to ask. I mean, surely the question you want to ask is, um, well, we kind of assumed that the packaging was effective. So how effective was it? Was it cost effective? Is it worth the extra expense? Those are the sorts of questions you really want to know rather than, I assume it made no difference, prove me wrong. And the reason that we covered this on more or less, uh, it's, a, it's an important statistical question, but the Supreme Court recently weighed in on the question. Um, and uh, it, the particular case was a company was being sued by investors because they produced a, uh, a pharmaceutical product that uh, uh, there were some reports of side effects. And they said they didn't have to, um, they didn't have to tell their investors about these side effects because they were not statistically significant. And the Supreme Court said, hey, you know, that's not good enough. You have to apply a common sense test. Would a reasonable person be interested in these reports? Would a reasonable person think that these reports were something to potentially be concerned about? And this rather artificial, rather crude test of statistical significance does not tell you what you need to know. So that was interesting for us because what seems like a really very um, obscure, arcane corner of statistical theory actually turns out to have real practical value real financial value, and, and to have made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And I, I apologize for the divergence, but I do, um, I do think it has a lot to do with also what the lessons that leaders can extract, extract excuse me, from uh, the new book, which is Adapt. Uh, I, I want to talk about you for a second. What are you reading right now? So, uh, reading James Glyke's book, The Information, at the moment. I'm really enjoying it. I think Glyke's a, a great writer, and, and I, you know, I love reading they're books about scientific ideas. I, I'm a voracious reader of non-fiction, uh, not just economics, but any non-fiction. I love that. And just turning around and looking at my uh, bookshelf, I'm looking at all of the books that I that I read as input to adapt. So I've got a book by a choreographer, Tyler Carr, a lot of stuff about the Iraq War, a great book about leadership called The Fourth Star. Uh, it's about four uh, U.S. generals who got their fourth star, including David Petraeus. Very, very interesting book by a couple of, uh, I think, a, a Wall Street Journal journalist and a Washington Post. Uh, and uh, a whole range of books on psychology. Um, so really, uh, you know, anything that grabs my attention. Uh, I, I guess the the book that I've read that really sticks in my mind um, the last year, two books. Uh, one is Being Wrong by Catherine Schultz. Um, if, you're, if you get interested in error and failure, which is what I am interested in, this is a really beautifully written, almost philosophical book, very accessible about all the different ways in which we can get things wrong. Not a business book, just a beautifully written book. And the second book that I really love, which is also beautifully written, is by a guy you might not have heard of, called Malcolm Gladwell. Um, he's, uh, 
I've just read his collected essays from the New Yorker, uh, What the Dogs Saw. And clearly he's famous for the tipping point and for outliers and things, but actually I think if you want to see Gladwell as his best, he's New Yorker. Like a brilliant, brilliant writer. Those are two books I really enjoyed reading. You know, it's interesting you bring those up. Uh, if I remember right, Gladwell's uh, What the Dog Saw has his article about uh, the myth of talent in it and looks at um, organizations that were so focused on promoting people um, who appeared to have talent. And what ended up happening is these people made it uh, basically uh, falsified their successes or took efforts to hide their failures in order to keep getting promoted. And as a result, the, the particular organization in question never really learned from the failures, and, and the organization in question was, of course, Enron. Um, yeah. and, and I think it's interesting you also, I, I've just sort of, um, not become aware, but I've just uh, added it to my wish list, uh, Catherine Schultz's book, Being Wrong. I think, I think it'll make a beautiful companion piece to adapt, but I'm going to go ahead and encourage my, uh, my readers to check out Adapt first, um, so they can understand the data, uh, which uh, we're, we're kind of nerds over at the Leader Lab, so they can understand the data behind why it's important to to be wrong and then can enjoy the, the philosophical sort of um, almost comforting ideas behind being wrong. So yeah, I encourage our readers to check out Adapt, learn about lessons from failure, and then, uh, you know, if you've never heard of Malcolm Gladwell, yeah, you should probably cover him too. But first, uh, Tim Harford and Adapt, leaders needing to learn from failure and how they can do that to solve a lot of the world's problems that can't be solved by leadership theory. Tim Harford, thanks so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. David, thank you very much.